0: And so really understanding how we can hold up the inherent, the inherent human experience that we all share, and that's universal to all of us, and also to see these different expressions of our lives as also something that binds us together, as also something that we can learn from and live with and really enjoy.
1: This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. This week on In Good Faith. Producer Heather Bigley speaks with Simran Jeet Singh, author of The Light We Give, How Sikh Wisdom Can Transform Your Life. We played an excerpt of this interview in episode 118, People of the Book, which you can find on our website or digital app, but we thought you'd love to hear the full interview. Simran is a visiting professor of history and religion at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. And Heather caught up with him when he spoke at BYU Law School's Religious Freedom Annual Review in June of 2022. I
0: initially, and, and in so many ways over my life, have actually thought about writing a resource for people to learn about my faith because very few people know about the Sikh tradition. Yeah, uh, You know, it's the world's fifth largest and about 70% of Americans have never heard of it. There really is a need and it's something that I have wanted to do and do in other ways. But as I started writing this book, I shifted course and vision in thinking about what it takes to actually open people up. And I think the, the challenge that I'm finding in today's world is we have a lot of information. We have more knowledge than ever before at our fingertips. We're the most educated society in human history, and look at where we are. <laughs> There's still so many problems, and and so what I've learned, and actually what's what's changed for me over the years has been learning that people's behaviors don't change until they are personally invested and and they personally care, and and a lot of that shift happens through storytelling. You know, you develop a connection with someone, you hear their story. You understand where they're coming from. And then all of a sudden, you care more about doing right by them. And you're also more interested in learning about who they are and where they come from. In a lot of ways, it's it's counterintuitive to how I understood my place in the society growing up uh, and what the solutions were. And in some ways, it's it's trying to take what I've learned along the way and blend it together so that it's accessible, it creates empathy, and also provides the kind of information that people would benefit from.
2: The experience of 9 11 is foundational to your story. Mm-hmm. Is that an even more difficult ask for a majority white Christian audience potentially who has very strong feelings of 9 11? What are you hoping to achieve with that story and how are you hoping that will impact people?
0: One of the things I've learned in my life is that we all encounter similar experiences. We all encounter similar moments. And then there are some cultural moments that we all encounter together. And our experiences of them can be different and they can all be true. And I think that's true for so much of life that we each have our own individual lives. And sometimes the challenge is really being able to recognize the truth in other people's experiences too. So one of the opportunities, I think, with sharing my experience of what 9-11 meant for me and the aftermath of how it impacted my life. And I mean, it really shaped my my personal life and my career. It also shaped a lot of my understanding of the world. I think in sharing some of those perspectives, there is an opening, especially with fellow Americans, because in some ways they might not expect it, but so much of my experience is similar to them. I was born and raised in this country. I watched the Twin Towers go down, and I felt attacked as an American, just like everyone else around me. And I think that creates a point of connection for people to say, hey, he is, in so many ways, he is one of us in a way that is surprising to me and opens me up to a different kind of experience. And then that opening gives the opportunity to say, hey, that's true. And also let me tell you about what that moment meant for me. That's very different probably from what it meant for you. But by that point, there's already that connection. People see me, they understand me, and then they're ready to go on the journey with me where I say, let me just tell you my story. And it's not a story where I bring in a lot of judgment. It's not oppositional or divisive. It's just it's just a personal story. My story is my own personal story, and I don't have to try and speak for an entire community right. or multiple communities who have have dealt with um, Islamophobia in, in their own unique ways and have come up with their own unique responses to it.
2: When we read a memoir from someone from a minoritized community, we then expect I'm going to learn everything about that community, right? right. right? And that is a psychological toll. Mm-hmm. And that's a difficulty. I think of the story you told about your daughter watching you at the airport.
0: It can be. And I think for a lot of people it is. And and even to me, to some degree, it can be difficult to to open yourself up to the world, not just because it creates vulnerability, but because there's a lot of emotional and psychological effort that you put into that. And I know this isn't true for everyone, but it, it has been true for me from childhood, I have experienced the sharing of my own story as an opportunity and not a burden. And I think that's part of how my parents saw it. You know, when we were younger, it was very much a simplistic view of racism, that if people just knew who we were, that we wouldn't be attacked or unsafe. My thinking on and understanding of racism has evolved over the years, but that element of it, the educational piece, dealing with ignorance, creating compassion, it still feels very important to the project of, of building a more cohesive society and, and building relationships across difference. And so, yes, the, there's a lot of work that goes into that. There's a lot of care, but it's also I find it incredibly rewarding and I take energy out of it rather than feeling exhausted by it. One aspect of it for me is that it is exciting to realize that you can change people's perceptions in a single interaction. Not many people have that opportunity. And by virtue of who I am and what my life has been like, I really can change people's perceptions. That that feels like a privilege and a responsibility at the same time.
2: I'm reminded then of one of the stories that I think is central the story of one of the gurus who stands up and says, I'm going to stand alongside this other community and then is taken and imprisoned and tortured and, and executed. And you tell versions of that story multiple times here. Why that story? What is so important about that story for your own faith life? What are you hoping a general readership is going to get from that story?
0: That story of Guru Tegh Bahadur, Being approached by people who are being persecuted, who are different from him, who practice a different religion, uh, and actually, very directly, there's disagreement about some of their theological worldviews and some of their social practices. And even then, when they approach him, Guru Tegh Bahadur agrees to stand up for them and their right to practice and be who they are. One of the reasons that that story has so much resonance for me is that as a child and even now, you hear people talk about how we should live and what they should do. But it's really rare to find someone who, uh, when push comes to shove and real sacrifice is required, they're still willing to live by that principle. You know, there's something about in that example of integrity that really speaks to me, of being authentic to who you are and being so clear that you're willing to put your life on the line for it. And it doesn't mean to me that you have to die or become a martyr to a cause, but what it means is that we have to have the clarity of vision and the unconditional love for these principles and for one another, that we really are able to see our humanity through our difference. Part of the the force of that story for me is in a society where we are constantly talking about identity and difference, whether it's on the basis of race or gender or religion or sexual orientation. I mean, we're just so wrapped up in our senses of identity and so focused on our differences that it gets really hard to look beyond them and see what's really at our core as human beings. And so that story to me, it's been a compass uh, when I am trying to make decisions and I'm feeling some pull of do what's best for you or what feels best for you. And You know, that happens all the time because we're humans and and we're always thinking about our self-interest and our safety. And to then have an example that reminds me, here is how you can live by your principles. And here is a way to make decisions that will make you feel whole. Like it's, it's just so rare to see that in human history. So that example has always been super powerful for me.
2: In our culture today, we use this term ally. And here's an ally. (laughs) Here's here's an example of what an ally is. In the past, when I've heard that term, what does that entail? What does that really mean? And then here I see this example and I'm like, okay, that's that's much bigger (laughs) than I originally thought. But at the same time, it's inspiring. It's truly inspiring that, oh, you're in trouble. I'm going to come help. And if what this means is I'm going to be right next to you when the trouble happens, I'm committed to that.
0: One of the places where I bring this story up is, is in talking about it as a love story, and one of the most powerful love stories that I've ever encountered. And part of my reflection is I'd heard this story over and over again throughout my childhood and never had thought about it as love. But it was in understanding what moved Guru Tegh Bahadur to give up his life for the sake of others that I finally started to understand the role that love has to play in this. And I think, to me, that's where allyship is at its best. Where we see one another for who we are rather than who we think we are. And we, we go deeper and we say, I it doesn't matter. Like it, it really doesn't matter if you are this way or another way. I love you unconditionally. And you know, I feel that as a parent, and I feel that as a you know, a son and a husband, and I think we can we can cultivate that. And when we do that, we can we can live into the example of Guru Bahadur." And again, we don't have to make the ultimate sacrifice, but we can make small steps every day to make life easier and more bearable for people that we love. We just have to learn how to love them.
2: Seems like you had an incredible childhood with incredibly loving, and in some ways, I don't want to use the term demanding, but. That Your parents had high expectations for you of how you were going to represent your community, but also how you were going to engage with others.
0: One of the funny things about my understanding of my parents um, that I didn't really question until I had kids of my own was I— I just assumed that they had it figured out, like that they knew that they knew what they were doing, uh, and that there was maybe some kind of manual or something. and I mean, there are books and articles and all that stuff, but i'm I'm learning now that you kind of figure out parenting on the fly. and so so then the question becomes, what do you prioritize uh, for your for your kids? And what I've learned from them and and what I've learned through a lot of people that I admire, culturally, it's so easy to get wrapped up in different versions and ideas of what success means. And the questions we constantly ask ourselves, and, and you know, my wife and I have been guilty of this too because it's so enticing, is, is what do we do to make our kids successful? How do we give them every opportunity? And that's important in some ways, but it's not everything. And one of the things I've seen from my parents in, in looking back at our childhood and, and in talking to them about how they made decisions was that there was a very clear priority for them And that priority was, we want you to be happy. And I think ultimately, that's what every parent wants. But the path to get there can be really circuitous or tumultuous or complicated.
2: And that's where the success comes in, right? If you are successful against this standard, then, then your chances at happiness will be so much more, right?
0: Exactly. Yeah, it's like, There are people who have reached all sorts of levels professionally in every industry. They're not necessarily happy. No. Right? That's not what gives you happiness. And it's something you learn over your lifetime. Like even myself right now, I'm getting close to 40. And everyone has told me my whole life, like wealth won't make you happy. Professional success won't make you happy. And like I've known that. To some degree, you learn that through your own journey in your own process well my parents were very clear and and we're trying to be very clear with our daughters that like everything else is icing you focus on making yourself whole and part of that i think comes with the experience of being minoritized or racialized in this country and i think anybody who is on the margins of society would understand this that from a young age and pretty early on you have to learn how to overlook people's perceptions of you and really understand your dignity and your worth from within. And learning to do that for me, it was particularly through the experiences of racism and xenophobia, but we all have our own experiences of this. Learning to do that gave me the the awareness and the self-confidence to say, I am who I am. I'm going to be who I'm going to be, and I'm going to live by that. And if people don't get that, and if they have assumptions about me or challenges or difficulty, that's their problem. And I don't need to be so wrapped up in making them happy because my happiness won't won't come from theirs. That to me has been a really important lesson uh, from my parents' approach in being both ambitious and having high expectations and understanding that those ambitious and high expectations are not tied to, you know, normative understandings of what success means. It's it's all tied to each individual's internal happiness.
2: And one of the things that they did, and maybe I can find it in the book, is you seem to know from a very young age this first verse— Yeah. In the sacred scriptures. And I'm fascinated by that and how that becomes a through line in the memoir. Hmm. What is that first text? Would you mind sharing it with us?
0: The initial composition in Sikh scripture, and it appears multiple times, uh, is essentially a list of qualities. They're they're like synonyms for the divine. I'll recite them for you and I can talk through their meanings and then what they've meant to me. So it's called the mulmantar, which is essentially the the root or the core formula. Many have suggested that this is the essence of Sikh teachings. Ik Satanam satinam, kartapurik, Nirpo. Gurprasad. those are the original terms, and they're essentially a list of qualities you know Ikunkar the first refers to the the unity of a divine force, oneness the second term satanam refers to the truth the divine is truth the third kartapurak, is the divine is creative and it goes on fearless without hate or enmity unborn self created undying and and effectively at the end realized through the grace of the guru. For me as a child, and this is how I've taught it to my girls too, it's you learn it as a set of words and you you initially don't even know what they mean. And over time, I'd come to understand the meanings and I would say, okay, this is our conception of what God looks like. God is these things. And that was cool too, right? Like that was helpful to me in creating a base of what I would now call theology, but the real force of it came in understanding one day my dad came to me and he said, well, what does it matter that God is one? Or what does it matter that God is true? And he said, if Guru Nanak, the founder, had said, God is three, or God is false, or what, like, how would that affect your life as a Sikh? What difference would it make? And I really hadn't thought about that question up until that point. I was still young. It was a fascinating thought exercise that revealed to me, ultimately, in, in conversation with him, that these qualities matter not just because of some theological principle, but because they are given to us as aspirations for what we can be as humans, what we should strive for in our daily lives. So if God is without fear, then we should learn to live without fear. If God is without hate or anger, these are the best of qualities within us that we can cultivate. That to me is the force of Mul It's not just a list of qualities that we ascribe to the divine. We teach in our tradition that we are all divine and we can all access and tap into these qualities. And that's what we aspire to do in our day-to-day lives
2: mantra is that word, the second word related to mantra? It is, yes. Which means prayer.
0: Which means prayer or formula, maybe something like that, uh, something that you recite. Right. But I, I think, you know, one, one thing that's interesting to me is in so many South Asian traditions, mantra is ascribed some sort of like su- super magical power. Right. So like if you say these things, then something great will happen in your life. And what the guru said was transformation happens through practicing these ideas so let us give you the qualities you live by them and that's the mantra right you just not that you just say something and you become something you actually live it
2: but and you're also talking about something that i think we all go through is whatever our mantra is right whatever we repeat to ourselves we have different relationships with it over time Mm -hmm. sometimes Mm we are like Oh, I've been saying that and I didn't actually know what it meant. Totally. And now so. I know. Right. And other times we're like, wait a minute. <laughs> I've been saying that and I haven't been living it at all. And I don't know if I want to. Do I want to? Right. And we sort of interrogate ourselves. Yeah. And
0: it's a it's a such a good question. You know, I, I would say the more I've come to understand these teachings, the deeper they have become for me and my faith within them has become deepened as well. And I'll give you a specific example. You know, from childhood the first term in the Sikh scripture, in the in the mulmantar as well, is Ikongar, which means the oneness of, of the divine. In many ways it's a really simple idea. I teach it to my to my kids, four and six years old. They get it. I understood it when I was a kid. And the way you articulate that is Vaiguru, which is a word we use for the divine. Vaiguru is in everyone, equally in their heart. And so for a long time, I think I sort of took that idea for granted, and it gave me a baseline understanding of our shared humanity, and my commitment to equality and justice was really born out of that. But I had never really dug into what does it mean to live with oneness as it pertains to your inner being. I remember I was in college when I came across a text. I started studying it from the sixth scripture called Asagibar for the first time, and it talks a lot about oneness as opposed to duality and i'd never really thought about the dualities of our daily lives it's very pointed about living with hypocrisy you know you live one thing and you say something else like one of the lines in there it says (laughs) you're planting poison but you expect nectar like what, what what are you doing like it makes no sense so in in some ways like this text opened up to me the dichotomies that we live into what what do you do versus what you say and within this text itself, it says lovers aren't ones who are divided. They're, they're constantly immersed in love. Like, there's a wholeness to that. And, like, you can think about your relationship with your loved ones and you can see how that is, right? You do what you say and you say what you do because you care, your move to. So that that was one element of how this opened up to me. And, and I think the other for me that really deepened was to go into the dualities of how we conceive of the world, not because that's how the sick worldview is, but because I was raised in a majority Christian country. Uh, so much of that theology is rooted in duality, right? So I'd always grown up around ideas of good and evil, or purity and pollution, or heaven and hell, or the divine and the devil, right? Like these were dichotomies that I had grown up around and had shaped my thinking, even subconsciously. And going through this text and trying to really take seriously this idea that everything is equally divine. There's no place for any kind of discrimination, right, on a personal level or in our understanding of the world where we say something is better, something is worse, and then we can create dichotomies based on that. I mean, it just made sense to me in terms of not not just from a theological perspective, e- even from a secular worldview of looking at the world and saying, yes, we're, we're all comprised of the same elements and, and, and the whole world is made up of the same atoms. So to really say something is good and something, I mean, it's, it's arbitrary and it's based on our, you know, conceptions of and in our experiences of power. And that's what creates suffering, and we don't have to live that way. So it's, it's a long way of answering the question, but I'm just thinking through those really powerful moments for me where I took seriously this idea and then explored what it would look like in a way that I hadn't really considered before.
2: That makes me think of gardening. This is a weed and this is a flower. Who decided that? <laughs> yeah. And it has a lot to do with colonialism and it has a lot to do with, again, power, who was who was making the decisions and, you know. Yeah.
0: I mean, if you, if you really think about it, like even if you think about beauty standards right. in the West, like who decided or that in, this is what?
2: Or in India. I was in India briefly and like the – the whitening creams right yeah that are exactly on sale there you're just like wow that's intense yeah right?
0: very intense so yeah, yeah. It's, it's also arbitrary and right. we, we don't really think to question it but i think if we do we would come back to the core and say it's all good it's all beautiful like everything is worth celebrating and i, I that's that's how i hope to live
2: i'm going to just ask you one more question because it, i think it connects to the ikonkar if i'm saying that correctly and it's a sort of progression of thought that you chart for us, which is, you know, there's a a time when I thought we're the same and thus I love you. Hmm. And then you get to a point where you're like, no, we're different and I still am going to love you. Can you walk us through that transition in your thought?
0: This is an interesting reflection for for anyone who thinks about... Relationships across faith difference, in particular, but really across any difference, because I think for so long uh, our model has been to say your differences don't matter. What binds us together is is our deeper humanity, and you know we, we can sort of trace some of the history of that, right? Like if we look at the civil rights movement and Dr. King's speech about one day his four ch- little children will be judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character. Like it's a beautiful vision, and I think a legacy of that has been that we take a colorblind approach right like that's what he was envisioning but we as a society have sort of skipped a step and said oh we're not going to care about that like i don't see color we're just we're just going to pretend like those things don't exist and and live together but i think by ignoring the reality of how life actually is for people of different backgrounds what we're really saying is i'm going to look past your actual lived experience and ignore that because it doesn't matter to me and it doesn't have to affect me. And it could just be a lot easier if we just said we're the same and it's all good.
2: Right. I don't see race and therefore I don't ever have to talk about it and how your life is impacted by the racism of our country. Because exactly. I don't
0: see it. Exactly. And maybe, maybe one day one beautiful day, we get to a point where everyone is on an equal footing and we don't have to talk about it. But right. that's not that's not happening anytime soon, unfortunately. I started to feel that in interfaith conversations, especially where people would so often speak to what we share together, which I think is really important for creating community and building relationships. But glossing over the particularities of my experience and say things like, I don't see your turban, like what your religion is doesn't matter to me. And what I started to feel was, actually, I would love for you to see my turban and to understand what motivates me and what my worldview is, because that's who I am. It's not all that I am. And I love that you think there's more to me than that, because there is. But it's important to me, too. And so really understanding how we can hold up the inherent the inherent human experience that we all share, and that's universal to all of us, and also to see these different expressions of our lives as also something that binds us together, as also something that we can learn from and live with and really enjoy. It's not necessarily how we live in our society right now because of all sorts of, I think, ego reasons. Right? We feel threatened. We feel like we might be replaced. We feel like we might lose power. We, we might lose some comfort. But I think at the end of the day, if we can really learn to hold those two things in tandem with one another, we could all have happiness in the same way.
2: What's interesting to me about that progression of thought is in the memoir, you tie it to the Sikh community in Oak Creek. Do you mind sharing that with us? How that in some ways instigates this transition?
0: In 2012, when this white supremacist uh, massacred a Sikh congregation in Wisconsin, I mean, it was a really important inflection point for me. And of, of course, you know, there were community members who were more much more directly affected for me, the the experience that I, that I share in the book was really trying to understand how do I practice what I preach and really see the humanity in someone who didn't see the humanity in us, and more than that, created real direct harm for people and never apologized. Right? He took his own life before the massacre was complete, and so it was it was a really I don't want to use the word difficult, but it, it was it was a challenge for me to get to a point where I knew how I wanted to see him, but I couldn't actually feel that reality. I couldn't actually see him as equally human because I was so, you know, some of me was angry initially and and I worked through that, but but a bigger part of it was I really couldn't see what we had in common. I tried very hard actually. I went to the neo Nazi message boards uh that he would read uh to try and get a sense of his thinking. I wouldn't recommend other people do that, that because it was awful. it was terrible. Yeah. Um but I, I, I really thought that if I could get in his head in some way, then I could see his humanity. And what I learned through through this experience was I couldn't. Like I we were just so different. We saw the world so differently. Our life experiences had been so different. And ultimately I had to get to a place where that was not the vehicle to do it. And it it works in a lot of cases, right? Like a lot of people that are different from us, we can find commonalities. It's in some ways a shortcut. The deeper, more powerful way and and what worked for me in recognizing the humanity in this killer who who clearly didn't care for me was learning how to care for him Uh, and to see that despite what he did, despite our differences, we still had a light that we share that's inside of us. Yeah, it's it's a difficult thing to come to terms with. Uh, but once you do, it creates a different kind of opportunity uh, for connection. And, and and really, I think what I've come to believe is the power of that exercise for me is that if we can learn to see the humanity in the people who are most different from us, then we can learn to see it in everyone we meet. and And that's completely transformative.
1: Thanks again to Simran Jeet Singh for speaking with us. His book, The Light We Give, is available from Penguin Random House, and you can follow Simran on Facebook or on Instagram, where he's at Prof. S-I-K-H-P-R-O-F. This episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If you enjoy the show, be sure to leave a comment or a review where you get your podcasts and spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at In InGoodFaith BYU. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you join me again soon, right here on In Good Faith.